Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of the humans behind the research. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Um, I'm very excited once again. I'm always excited to bring you an episode. I feel like this is just the same thing that I say every single time, but I mean it. I'm very excited to bring you another episode of the podcast. Um, This episode is probably going to sound a little bit different, and that is because the computer I normally do my podcast recordings on was just freaking out when I went to record this. And so um, about two weeks ago, my laptop crashed and it was a nightmare. Um, Eventually I got it back up running, but I ended up having to get a new laptop. And it turns out that I hadn't configured my Zoom settings for that new laptop that I ended up recording this episode of the podcast on and um some insider podcast knowledge here but in your zoom preferences you can choose to ensure that if you're recording a meeting every person in the meeting can have a separate audio file and this is really great when it comes to recording episodes of a podcast because if someone is speaking for example if my guest is speaking and on my computer I have my notifications turned on and my email dings when I go back to edit the episode I can silence the dinging of my email to make sure that you can hear everything that my guest is saying and that it isn't covered by my email going off. Um, However, in this case, I completely forgot that I hadn't changed my Zoom settings. And so when um, Zoom finished converting this episode into the audio format, it saved just as one big audio file which makes it a little bit more difficult to edit. And so this is, I think, the most unedited podcast episode I've ever done for the most part. There were a couple little noises and things like that that I could take out here and there. But for the most part, you're going to hear some emails dinging. You might hear me taking a sip of like water at some point. Um... But it's a very frank and open conversation. This is what my podcast recordings sound like, including all of the dinging of emails and sound effects on the side. So I'm excited to bring you this episode because this is what recording a podcast actually sounds like. It's just a conversation that happens to be recorded. And so once again, I'm very excited to bring you this guest. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time monologuing because I feel like this episode is almost like a perfect length. So I'm not going to say very much else, just that I'm very excited for this episode. And there's a lot of interesting insights and valuable information here. And I hope you're able to find some of that or relate to some of that as well. So um, I'm just going to insert the music now. Today's guest is Erin, fiercely independent and incredibly determined. Let's hear her story. (laughs) 
this is easy. Uh, I wanted to to be a doctor when I grew up. When I grow up, I don't feel like I'm a grown up. <laughs> you do I. <laughs> uh, no, as a child, I wanted to be a doctor, which I don't necessarily think that's out of the cards for me at the current moment. Um, but yeah, somewhere in sort of the healthcare space, which even though I'm not a physician currently, I would say that I still occupy space within healthcare. Right. Okay. So you said it's not out of the cards for you at the moment. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's hard. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So I finished graduate school and then before I even finished writing my thesis, I took a job at the, at the neuro in, in Montreal, where I did clinical or do clinical research as a coordinator and very naturally evolved into more work within neurocritical care in particular, and have sort of taken on a role there where I oversee and help sort of organize the creation of a new division of neurocritical care. Neurocritical care is a specialty that's sort of new, um, where it takes critical care, intensive care medicine, um, and puts the emphasis on neuro. And so my my background is is neuro-related or neuro-rehab-related. And so this is all sort of novel. Um, and I feel like I play a pretty key role in the creation and the development of this division, which has only happened in the last couple of of months. Um, and so I see that I am able to do all these things within that space, particularly as it pertains to research and operations. And I think that's where my skill set is, but I I've always felt like I would do more schooling in what that looks like, um, I'm unsure. I, I've obviously had this pull towards medicine. I exist within, within healthcare, within the medical space. Um, do I for certain want to invest the 10 years of training that it's going to take to be where I would want to be? I mean, if I went to medical school, it would likely be neurology or internal medicine. And then that sort of evolution into neurocritical care. I, I feel like I would be a physician in the current um, division or, or department that I, I work in right now. It's a, it's a long process to, to get in, to have the prerequisites to get into medical school. And then just the, the four years you have to dedicate to the schooling and then depending on which specialty you choose, it's anywhere from three to five years of residency plus a fellowship, then working into being staff. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a large time commitment. Um, I think that kind of comes down to sort of what I, I want um, out of life and out of my career. And the end of the day, I want to create some sort of impact and leave some sort of legacy that demonstrates a push towards positive change. I don't necessarily think that that has to happen as a physician. Um, but I really, I really love science. I really love the human body. I, I like physiology. And, and so I think that that's an interest that I have and potentially would pursue with respect to medicine. But I also feel like I have a skill set. It is more kind of 
operations and, and research based and I can contribute in that way that I desire without, you know, another 10, 10 years of school. So it's more just a decision that I have to make and sort of where I feel most pulled. Oh, definitely. I kind of want to go back to the very beginning. You said you, you know, growing up, you always wanted to be a doctor. Like, did that stem from anything? Did that happen one day where you realized you wanted to be a doctor? Was it like, oh, my parents think it's a good career? (laughs) It's funny. funny. I feel like a lot of people who say, oh, I always wanted to be a doctor were definitely influenced from their parents. I feel fortunate that I never felt pressured in any way by my parents at all um they they're just very supportive and from a very young age they recognized that I was fiercely independent and incredibly determined and so they helped to foster those qualities in me but never really dictated which path that I I would take um I always gravitated towards science in, in school um and and learning about the body and and how it worked I I can't think of a particular moment where it was like I'm going to be a doctor but I I always felt pulled to to helping people and I think helping people plus science and like understanding the human body you sort of put the two and two together and you get medicine in a way yeah definitely um Okay, you've mentioned a couple things that I think are interesting. You know, you want a career, and I wrote down that demonstrates a push to positive change, and you've always been pulled toward helping people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you kind of already mentioned, you're hinting at it, and obviously we're going to talk about it, is that, like, you went and did your master's. And I'm not saying that doing a master's negates those things or doesn't lead you toward those things. But I guess from the dream of being a doctor, how did you end up doing your master's? Where, like, when did paths change or divert a little bit? In undergrad, there was a period of time where I was like, I don't know if medicine is really exactly what I want to do. Um, I, in undergrad, I worked a lot with the varsity teams. And so a lot of institutions have programs where you can apply to be like a student athletic therapist. So I did my undergrad in kinesiology and I spent six years in that sports medicine program and just recognize like you directly make people feel better in, in rehab, in the rehab space. Um, And, and physicians sometimes are a little bit on the periphery. And this was before I was exposed to, the different sort of divisions of medicine and intensive care and that sort of thing. Um, so I sort of went back and forth between rehab and medicine. And then as I was in undergrad, I also like felt pulled to sort of ask questions. Why do we do things in this way? And like, how do we make X, Y, and Z better? So naturally I would just read papers and I got some, some summer jobs doing research And the process of coming up with a question and then figuring out how to answer it was was really intriguing to to me. And so at the end of my degrees, so I did (laughs) undergrad in kinesiology and then one in French. I just took a French minor that I didn't declare and continued on. Um, so, So I finished my French degree. And then I just like, I was like, I'm unsure 
if I want to write the MCAT, if I want to be a physio, um, but I knew I liked research and I knew I liked the rehab space. And so I sort of put those two together and that's how I got into to the path of graduate school. Okay, I guess going into grad school at that point, did you see it as potentially a stepping stone to medical school or was it like I'm going to pursue this because there's a lot of aspects about going to graduate school that I'm passionate about and that I enjoy and I'm going to see where that ends up taking me without thinking of medical school as potentially this ultimate goal at the end of it. Yeah, that's a good question. I think initially my thought was like, maybe this is the stepping stone into medicine. I, I acknowledge that it's often easier as a candidate or you stand out as a candidate if you have a graduate degree. Um, but I also felt pulled to sort of explore this area of research. So um, I particularly focused on concussions, which was directly influenced by my experience with the sports team. So I spent four of the six years with the women's rugby team, um, which is, you know, full of concussions. And then a couple of very close friends of mine also in that time period experienced concussions and then substantial sequelae afterwards um, that kind of pushed me into to being interested in neuro. And so yes, it was on my mind that this is a, a likely stepping stone for medical school. I also have a cousin who sort of followed that path, graduate school, med school, physician. Um, but once I had been accepted, I, I felt very invested in, in the research that I was doing and sort of what it was that I was going to learn in that process uh, of being a research trainee. Mm, okay. So what did you end up studying then specifically? What was your research about? My research was looking at predictors of concussion risk in varsity athletes. <laughs> I'm sitting here like writing it down. <laughs> um, particularly as it pertains to, to um, anthropometrics, uh, uh, strength, muscle strength. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of thoughts in, in concussion research about, you know, how do you prevent it from happening? Does protective equipment work? You know, if you wear a mouth guard, if you wear a helmet, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the literature doesn't show much. It, protective equipment is more for um, like skull fractures and, and trauma than it is for, for concussions. And a lot of that has to do with understanding the mechanism of how a concussion actually happens. Um, and so with one of those mechanisms being kind of like a whiplash um, mechanism, I was like, well, maybe part of it is actually athletes, people who, who have a body shape or, or muscular strength that supports the neck better maybe they're less likely to sustain a concussion than someone who's, you know, really tall, has a really long neck, not a lot of musculature around it. Um, and so, yeah, that was sort of what led me into to trying to figure it out. Um, yeah, that's, that was sort of my, what pushed me to kind of ask that question. Right. Okay. So my next question is actually going to sound a little bit dumb. Okay. Um, because I don't do any kind of research that's related to this whatsoever. So did you literally go around and like measure 
like, I guess people who had been concussed versus not concussed and like measure their necks and like the amount of muscle tissue, like, you know what I mean? Like, how does one answer that question? Yeah. So the design is uh, a prospective cohort study that looked at varsity athletes who had been classified as high risk for concussion. And so within McMaster, the, those are hockey, soccer, football, rugby, basketball, lacrosse. Um, and they sort of have a, a, a certain testing that goes with that, that happens preseason. And I thought if I measure the, their body size, so neck circumference, head circumference, neck length, and then find a strength test that is clinically relevant, um, and has good psychometric properties. So reliability, um, and validity. If I test their strength before they even start their season and then follow them over time and look at the differences in strength between the group of people who sustain a concussion and those who do not within a given season, maybe that would provide enough data to determine these are the characteristics of the people who did have a concussion compared to those who did not. Okay. And was there anything particularly interesting that you ended up finding or ended up doing? So it's hard because I was able to actually um, test a lot of athletes. Um, One of the the largest sort of sample size recruitments in in the department at the time. Uh, And so the total was around uh, 280. Oh my God. Um, yeah, which I thought I felt, I felt really proud of just because it was largely based on the relationships that I had created while I had been a student therapist. Um, the problem is the amount of concussions that happen is significantly lower than the total number of people. So my supervisor kept being like, this could be a PhD. Like you could follow them over a longer period of time because you would end up with a larger total number of concussions um, in a longer period of time. So the total number of concussions was um, 39, I believe was the final number. So close to 40, which is is a lot, mm-hmm. but not necessarily enough to demonstrate sign- statistically significant differences in the concussed group versus the, the non-concussed group. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? What was no, that, that answers the question, yes. but follow-up question that's like semi-related. So your supervisor said, you know, you could do a PhD with this, blah, blah, blah. To my knowledge, you are not currently doing a PhD. (laughs) I'm not doing a PhD. Uh, So I didn't want to. I, I wasn't I wasn't sure that at the time that I would have had to apply to do a PhD that I loved graduate school enough to invest that amount of time in into this project I I knew that it was going to be hard and I know that in grad school like you get to a point where you hate your project even though you know I love the idea I I feel like in my cohort in particular 
I was one of the few people who came up with their own idea, who wasn't just working off an already existing data set, who didn't really, you know, have their, their project given to them. And so I thought it was important, but I wasn't so convinced that I would be able to sustain the, the momentum going forward that is required to do a PhD. Oh, 100%. I'm nodding the whole time because as you talk about like hating your research and stuff, I'm like, yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Like we all go through that. Um, So then did you know exactly, like once again, we knew that med school was sort of like on the table, but as you were wrapping up, were you like, you know what, like I'm going to apply to the neuro and this is where I'm going to go. Like how did, because I think that a lot of the time, you know, at least in the sciences, I have a degree in life science. So yeah, I feel similarly where, you know, there weren't necessarily options presented to us either. It was kind of like, oh, you can do a master's, you can go to med school, you can end up in healthcare some way. And that's just kind of how it was framed. And so the transition from undergrad to a master's wasn't too bad in a way because a master's was still considered a stepping stone in some regard. Whereas by the time you come to finish a master's, at least in my perspective, and you can tell me whether or not you agree, you know, your next step is like potentially med school again, some, a job in some regard, whether it's research related, whether it's content related to your master's or a PhD, but none of those things are like stepping stones anymore those are all like bigger career related activities jobs programs whatever you want to call it and so you know when it came time as you were finishing up your master's did you spend a lot of time thinking like oh shit I don't know what I'm doing or did you already have a plan what was what was that like for you that's a funny it's a funny question because I am someone, so there's multiple reasons that I sort of applied to the neuro and and moved to a different province. Um, I, I'm someone who, when they are really anxious at the work that has to be done, I typically avoid it until I'm at the point that I am forced to do it. So I was at that point with my project where it was just kind of like, I had to go through the data analysis and I, you know, I had done okay in stats and I was using a program, but I didn't necessarily feel super confident. And, and so I avoided writing my thesis by applying to a job in a different province and moved before I had even written my first chapter. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) So it was, it was fueled by a lot of things. I was avoiding the writing part um, because at the time I thought that a quote unquote negative result meant I did it wrong, which isn't the case. Now that I'm like very deep in, in medical literature and research, like a negative result is still a relevant result. Um, I, so I was avoiding that part of the work. I also was highly anxious about finances and and getting a job. Um, I I had to pay my way through school and I had worked my whole life and worked through school. 
Um, so I was really anxious about, you know, all of this student debt that I had accumulated and not being able to pay it back. Um, and I was freaking tired. Like <laughs> I was tired. I think maybe having gone to, to graduate school right after my kinesiology degree, I would have maybe had the gas left to just write the, write the paper, defend my thesis and then move on like most people would have. But those sort of two extra years of French that I took to get that degree really, um, it was really exhausting. I, I was tired being in school. I was tired of feeling like, even though I spent my whole day working, the minute I leave the office, there's still that sort of feeling hanging over you that you have something to be doing. You shouldn't be relaxing. Like, why are you out with your friends? Um, yeah, I, I was done feeling like that. And so I avoided it by getting a job, which like wasn't the solution because then I had a full-time job and was still a full-time student at the same time. Oh my God. Okay. I have so many questions that have stemmed from this now. So the first being that, um, how was it to juggle working a full-time job and trying to finish your master's and moving to a new province? Yeah, (laughs) it, it, I say awful. Um, it wasn't awful. It was hard. It was hard. I though have learned, you know, I'm not one of those people who, who really is going to take the path of least resistance. I just, you know, I feel like I really thrive under pressure and when the stakes are high and so loaded on, (laughs) but like all of this was self-induced. Like I did it to myself. (laughs) I created my own pressure. So it was very exhausting. I moved in July and started right away and I defended my thesis the following August. So where I was, I left Hamilton and, and Mac, I was sitting at about almost exactly two years. Um, and, and it took me a whole other year to, to do my defense. So I, I sort of was at the, the cutoff point of, of time to do it. Um, it, yeah, it was a lot working eight hours a day in, uh, in an ICU is, is draining in itself. And then to have to go and sit at the library or sit at Starbucks and, and do data analysis or, or writing was, was super hard. I learned how to be really effective with my time and um, people at work would laugh and be like, you, why do you get up so early? And I'm like, because the time between five o'clock in the morning and six 30 is like when I am most focused and most clear. And I need to dedicate that time to my research, right? Like there's a little more forgiveness when I come to work than when I'm trying to like, look at all of these stats or, you know, brush up on the literature and what I've plan to say in in a piece of work that has my name on it so um yeah it it was a lot but I also like feel very proud and like very accomplished that I was able to do it because when I left my supervisor was like well people who get jobs before they defend or write their thesis are only like 10 percent there's only 10 percent chance of them actually finishing and I was like I'll be one of those people (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. So actually let's talk about this a little bit because this topic becomes a little bit taboo at times for grad school where it's like finishing later than the projected timeline or the timeline that the university or the institution sets for you. So did you have any qualms about finishing a little bit later or did you feel a particular way about it? Because I find that depending on who you are, you know, there's some people who are very much like, I need to stick within this timeline. Like it's the timeline itself. Obviously there's extra factors, including you know, your funding package and when that expires and how much you need to pay with that and the financial aspects of it all. There's mental, emotional, physical in terms of your location, your geography, how you're feeling, accessibility, other factors involved in that. But in terms of the mentality solely about everyone assumes that we need to finish within two years. And if you don't finish within two years or you accept a job before that two years are over, you're not going to finish and you are going to be perceived in this particular way. Did you have any feelings about that particular perception? I didn't care. I, I didn't care about the timeline. Um, Obviously there were times where I was stressed out, you know, I would get emails from the associate dean being like what are you doing like are you going to defend what's happening and I think that stressed my supervisor out part of my sort of I guess attachment style we could call it is being avoidant um and so I would respond to them but I also in in that process learned to be confident in my own abilities and my ability to get things done and and so I would answer them and just be like it's fine. I've got this and, and just handle it. Um, the timeline, I didn't really, I didn't really care. I was doing other things. Like I didn't have time or energy to, to waste on being concerned about the two-year timeline, especially because I know a lot of people that went over it. And, and so I don't think that that makes their research any, any, less valid than people who do finish in the time frame. I don't think it makes us because I guess I'm one of those people worse researchers. I think that we were able to get it done. And most of the people who I know exceeded the two-year timeline, there's like several valid reasons for why that is. And if people want to have judgments about that, well, that's a them problem. 100%. The other thing that you mentioned earlier and kind of factors into this conversation as well is talking about the financial aspect of paying for school, graduate school, and the debt that ends up being accumulated for a lot of students that end up pursuing graduate degrees. And I think a lot of the time this kind of gets, I don't know, not I don't want to say shoved under the rug, like that's not the phrasing that I want to go with here. But a lot of times that is a topic that isn't as discussed for whatever reason, everyone assumes that we are just able to afford life. And that's not the case for many students. And I was wondering if you felt comfortable talking about your experience and having like, and thinking about as you're pursuing this degree, you're thinking about money and the finances and the debt you've accumulated and how you're going to start paying that off and how everything is going to move forward from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I think people don't talk enough about the finances of, of education. 
especially in Canada, I mean, we often hear of how much it costs to go to, to university in the States and it's clearly a, a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but in Canada also like to fork out 10 grand a year on education, if you're not living at home with your parents, plus the cost of living is, is like pretty substantial. Um, and I had worked since I was like 12, you know, like babysitting and all these things. And my parents, um, my parents from a young age were like, if you want to have nice things also, like, I like nice things. Everyone does, but like, (laughs) (laughs) they were like, you need to learn to pay for them yourself. Um, and, and so that was sort of something that was instilled in me very young. So I always had a job. Um, I don't think I necessarily understood how much debt I had taken on until graduate school. I mean, you spend eight years in university, you're looking at 10 grand a year, there's 80 grand, right? And now that I think about it, you know, 80 grand, it it doesn't really stress me out. I don't feel stressed by that, but just because those characteristics of independence and and determination had been really fostered in me from a young age I felt like I had assumed this debt I need to to be the one to pay it off I can't ask for help and because I had never been in the workforce I didn't know like the workforce in terms of like being full-time and actually having a career and you know making more than a student wage I didn't know what that looked like and and so I, all of a sudden, once, you know, my funding had run out, um, felt very anxious about what that process would look like and owing the government all this money and what happens if I default on a loan and and all of these things. Um, And since then, I've kind of chilled out a little bit, but (laughs) that that was like a very real anxiety for me. And I think that they don't do a good enough job when you're in university And if you do require financial aid to explain sort of the process of what paying it back looks like, what your options are, but also the process of like finding a job after university, I don't think they really equip us with that. Um, And so those sort of unknowns breed more anxiety. Mm -hmm. So you are at this point juggling, finishing your thesis the financial aspect of eight years of university at this point slash postgraduate education, finding a job, moving to a new province. (laughs) Um, Do you want to talk about what the experience was like overall generally for you in like, how was the move and then starting a new job and kind of figuring out how the clockwork was going to move once your feet hit the ground. Mm-hmm. I, it's funny. Uh, I think about the day that I moved to Montreal. My apartment that I had signed a lease on wasn't ready until August, and I was set to start the beginning of July. So I had one month where I was in an apartment that um, the the real estate agent had found for me to live in. Um, that was furnished until my apartment was ready. And so 
my parents blessed them. Like they sort of had to move me twice. So when I came in, in July, it was with my mom. It was just sort of the things that I needed. And the way I handle with stressful things is to, to sort of shut down and, and turn inward and, and deal with it myself. And my, my mom, I remember her, I had called her kind of the week after I had started work and she said to me, you know, I was, I was a little nervous leaving you. Like I, I was nervous, but you weren't really saying anything. And my, my initial reaction in those moments is to just be like, it's fine. Like, I don't need your help. Like I'll figure it out. And I don't necessarily think that that is is right or wrong. It's just the way that I had always handled things. If I don't know how to do something or I feel stressed out, I don't need your help. I just need to like sit with my own thoughts and figure out how I'm going to handle it and like what the steps are to get to the next outcome. So I felt like it was actually an okay environment for me to be in because I moved to a new province where I didn't know anyone where I already have friends. One of my girlfriends was doing her PhD at McGill. So I had her, but I didn't really have people in Montreal who, who were there that I had really, really strong connections with. And I think that that was okay because I don't know, I, similar to what I had said, like I was confident that I would get things done. And so confident in, in myself that I was like, well, the only thing I definitely have right now in this, in this city, in this space is me. And I know that I can depend on me. And that's really important. Yeah, it was, it, it, uh, it, it was reassuring. I mean, overall it was overwhelming, but I feel like I am able to handle a lot of overwhelm and, and it was just sort of kind of take it as it comes. Um, I have like a lot of very supportive friends and and family. So that was like a nice outlet when I felt like things were, were too much, but in terms of being able to manage moving in a new job and, and school, uh, it, it was okay because I, I felt like I could depend on my, my own abilities and my own skills um, and depend on myself. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was okay. But by the end of the year, like I was shot, like I was done. <laughs> oh, 100%. And along those lines, you had mentioned this too, like toward the end of your master's, you were talking about how you didn't really have a lot of gas left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the time, at least I refer to that as burnout. Like, would you say that you were burnt out? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And so, see, I think this is another thing (laughs) that kind of doesn't get addressed very often is how much time you spend, even if you're not like fully working on the things that you're working on, but thinking about those things. Cause you also mentioned, you know, guilt related to it outside of these quote unquote working hours that you have. So between the time spent working, like literally working on things, whatever that may look like reading, writing, interviewing, meeting, sending emails, but then also spending your time outside of those working hours. And I'm using quotation fingers, feeling guilty or thinking about doing that work like it's exhausting so exhausting and 
yeah, so exhausting. Um, my supervisor was actually really great at bringing that to my attention. In one of my first meetings with her, she said to me, Erin, you need to account for the time that it takes to think about things because it's not just going to happen when you're sitting at your desk and in work mode. She, she was very supportive in that way um, where she was like, I understand that you're not always going to be reading or writing or whatever, but she's like, I guarantee that when you're standing over your sink doing the dishes, your those ideas the things that you've read the things that you've learned about your own data you're digesting them and they're percolating and you're figuring out how they connect and how you can write and when she said that it really something really clicked because i i feel like that is sort of how i had approached school most of my life that you know i wasn't one of those students who would start assignments weeks and weeks ahead of time and right like i was I was. <laughs> yeah, like you could call me a bad student. I remember grad school in our courses, people would be like, well, have you started this assignment? And it's like due in two weeks. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like I'm going to start it three days before, right? <laughs> like I'm going to actually work on it then. Yeah. But that didn't mean that I wasn't reading or thinking about it or thinking about what I was going to say. And a lot of my academic career is spent thinking about things that I've read. I really like reading. Um, and thinking about the question or the problem and, and how to solve it without actually having that tangible work product. But that doesn't mean I wasn't working on it. It doesn't mean that it didn't consume my thoughts or occupy my time. Um, and so because I think in academia, especially in graduate school, that sort of thinking about it is constant. I was ready to not think like I was ready to be done thinking. Um, and I think that that constant thinking about things and or feeling guilty that you're not doing, it really contributes to feeling exhausted. Oh, 100%. Are you also someone who, when doing your thinking outside of like sitting at your desk and like doing the work, quote unquote, um, did you, were you one of those people that had like epiphanies in random places? Like all of a sudden you would just have like ideas about your work and you're like, oh my God, I need to go write this down or I need to go do something about this. hundred percent. And I would like probably write it in a note on my phone. It wasn't until graduate school that I like actually started carrying a notebook. And now I have a notebook with me all the time to write things down. Um, yeah, it was doing, doing menial tasks is when I was sort of like, oh wait, this is what makes sense oh, this is what I need to do. So I also, I teach yoga and a lot of times it would be while I was practicing um, yoga that I would be like, oh, I've got it. Like I know how to answer this question or I know how to start this chapter or I know how to link all of these things together. It's very rarely that it would be at the time that I was sitting at my desk that those things would come to me. It was always sort of outside working hours. So oh, 100%. I have fully like stubbed my toe having an epiphany and then running to like record it somewhere and just fully like biffing myself on the side of like some furniture somewhere. <laughs> okay. Um, it's like a workplace hazard. Yeah. Oh, one ha but like, I am the hazard. Like I am the one, like it's nothing around me. Everything around me is like being perfectly still and calm and wonderful. <laughs> it's just me. Like freaking out and needing to get things down in <laughs> some way or another 
Um, I'm just looking through what I've written down and where I wanted to go. I think I actually want to go back to something that you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. which was, you know, when we were talking about med school, it, it was um, considering that this is a 10 year roughly investment in time. And I guess, are you weighing any sort of pros and cons or specific factors in particular where you're like, like, these are all the things that would motivate me to apply and write the MCAT and go through the process. But at the same time, like, other than the fact that it's a 10 year process, like, are there things within that 10 year process that you're like, I don't know if this is a negotiable point currently anymore for me, or were there other factors involved? Like what about, because I guess the earliest point to start is now, Mm -hmm. but 10 years is a long time to commit to something. Yeah. 10 years is a long time, but also part of me is like, okay, okay. That time is going to pass anyway. Um, Right. The time will pass anyway. So Pros, I mean, of course I'm weighing the pros. Like the pros for me really is about the learning, the the profound knowledge that I would would get through that experience. Um, the pros would be sort of, it, it's hard because it, it really comes down to sort of the work that I would like to produce and can I produce that same work without an MD? Right? I mean, it's, it's apparent in this space that you get more respect if you're a doctor, even though I feel like I have a lot more knowledge about research than a lot of these physicians, right? Doctors are not researchers unless they have research training. A lot of them do not right? A lot of them are just brilliant clinicians. And so they read research papers, but don't necessarily know research methodology or how to do the research themselves. But there's a certain amount of respect, regardless of your ability to know how to do research that you get with those letters. Does that matter to me? Not necessarily. I think, you know, respect is earned when you demonstrate high level academic work. Um, but I think it would be facilitated with, with medical school. Um, the, the learning is sort of the biggest one. The cons isn't just the time, but also the financial aspect of it, right? I have a job now and I've been doing well to the point where I am start taking on more responsibility, getting promoted, making more money. Do I want to spend four years of my life in medical school unemployed. So living off of a line of credit and then residency and fellowship where I'm not making a lot of money. And everyone is like, Oh, but you know, you gain it back. You'll be doing medicine, et cetera. Sure. You do. I think people have this idea of doctors being extremely, extremely rich, which they make a very comfortable living. They also have a lot of responsibility. Also, if you want to be very wealthy, 
don't go into medicine. Your hours are really bad, right? It's a lot of responsibility, like go into business or, or like some sort of finance, you know? Um, so yeah, there, there are pros and cons. It also, how does medical school line up with what I want in my personal life? right? Those two things don't exist separately. Do I want to be having babies while I'm in my first year of residency and already exhausted because I work an 80 hour work week and now I have an infant? Am I willing to uproot my life that I've created in Montreal because I was matched at a residency program across the country like I think that there's a lot of logistical things to consider because medicine isn't a job it's a vocation and there's a lot of time and energy and other things other than just the 10 years to take into consideration in the pursuit of, of that endeavor Oh, 100%. And kind of along these lines and all of the thinking and the reflecting that you've been doing, do you think a lot of these considerations or factors that you're now considering have come with time? Like, do you think that you would have been considering all of these things back when you were an undergrad and considering writing your MCAT and applying to med school? Oh, definitely not. Because at 22, you're like, "Eh, whatever, like, I'm a 22 year old kid. And 10 years from now, I'm, you know, still considered in my prime. And to, to start a medical practice at, at 32 is sort of standard, really. Um, you, you, yeah, don't necessarily have established roots so much when you're, when you're 22. I don't think, I don't think you necessarily are worried about the, the personal aspects, especially, I mean, this is, I don't want to generalize, but like if you're particularly as a woman, um, considering going into medicine and you're 22 years old and you're going to apply right away, right? You have an understanding that you still have like all of this time. If you're looking to have a family and all of these things, you move that eight years later to your thirties and you recognize, okay, if I want a family and the timeline for medicine is 10 years, well, they have to happen together simultaneously. And that's a lot of responsibility and, you know, given where I would consider working in the realm of medicine that I would want to pursue, it's a lot of hours, you know what I mean? You're not really present. And so I think that those are things to also consider in the impact that they would have on, on the family that I would look to create. Oh, 100%. Alongside with this, do you feel as though spending time in grad school and kind of going through quite a few transitions all at the same time, did anything fruitful come from that experience? And by fruitful, I don't mean tangible as we've been talking about or like a physical item, but do you feel as though you've learned anything about yourself from having all these experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a lot of things. I think one in particular that I, I really feel proud of is, um, is just my ability to connect with people. And that's also sort of one of the pros to, to leaning towards medicine because everyone thinks medicine is about science and physiology. And yes, you can learn that, but medicine is really about caring for people. And 
based on what I've heard from a lot of people, they've had really poor experiences with physicians and in, in, in medicine because the person providing care to them maybe is brilliant as a brilliant scientific mind, but is really bad at people skills. Um, and so when you move to a different province to start a job where you know no one, and you don't necessarily have any connections, like making friends as an adult is really hard. And I feel really proud of myself for being able to just pack up and do it and not feel, ugh, well, I mean, I was scared at times, but um, not feel super worried because I feel like I have an ability to connect with people um, and make them feel comfortable around me so much so that I'm able to foster relationships. Um, and I think that that's super important when I think back on my my undergraduate career and then leading here and sort of what my life will look like or what anyone's life looks like at the end of the day the tangible things that you produce you know the the papers and the accolades and whatever don't matter because the people speaking at your funeral are talking about you as a person and how you made the people around you feel um and so i think that the, it really sort of reinforced or demonstrated that, that I, I'm able to connect with people. And, and I think that that's important because we're social beings. I would have not been able to do it if I wasn't able to find connections with others. Um, and, and yeah, I think that that's a skill that regardless of sort of the trajectory that my life takes will serve me very, very well. But I think just when your question was like, sort of what have you learned about yourself over these years and the advice or life motto, I think that it really comes back to that is that at the end of the day, I think what matters most is we get so consumed in sort of what others think of us a little bit, others being people who are kind of at an arm's length that you don't necessarily have connections with. And what actually matters is what you think of yourself and what the people you love think of you, right? Every, like if other people like you, like that's a bonus, but it's the ones that you hold nearest and dearest, their opinion of you that matters and your own opinion of you. And outside of that, like it's gravy. And I think that the faster you learn that that is the most important thing and that the opinions of others being the general public or your colleagues or, you know, that person who is rude to you or whatever, what they think of you doesn't really matter is none of your business and like doesn't really affect you in the long run. The more peace you'll have and the more energy you'll give to the people who who do know who you are as a person and who value you. And cut. <laughs> <laughs> like that was so beautiful. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, I think that's it. I I really appreciate this conversation. I thought I thought initially it was going to be like a lot of like, and like, what was your results say? And did you do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, ugh, like now I have to pull out my thesis and be like, yeah, like logistic regression and like I'm traumatized by the stats and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think graduate school, you know, kind of it's, 
this sort of vacuum where you learn about yourself and the work that you produce is, is wonderful and I, and meaningful. I think the question that I asked and the process I went through to answer the question is important and it taught me a lot and it applies to what I do for my career, but more important is what I learned about myself in that process and how it has sort of made me a better person moving forward. Oh, 100%. I think that's like, I think that's a level of implicit learning, or I guess a hidden curriculum of grad school, if we want to call it that, where you go in assuming that you're going to learn a little bit more about research and a particular topic, but what you don't know or understand until you're in it is just how much you end up learning about yourself as a person and learning how to navigate moving forward with these new insights that you have about yourself and understanding what you need, what you want, or what you're going to do, want to do, need to do Mm -hmm. after the fact. I don't, and I think that's something that isn't necessarily recognized when one is applying or considering any form of graduate degree. Not at all. I think even me, when I was writing my application letters to, to graduate school, it was about, I want to answer these questions and all of this stuff. And yeah, the, the process was interesting and it taught me a lot, but the most tangible things that I took from that was not, you know, what are the predictors of concussion risk in athletes? It was a, a lesson in resilience and in my abilities to, to persevere in my determination in how to handle things with grace when things go wrong, which in graduate school, they inevitably go wrong. Um, Yeah, I think it's much more of a process of learning about yourself and sort of like a coming of age than it is about the the research. And the research is just a... a byproduct of that learning. This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email humans of grad school podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.